0: Dear Father, as we come before you today, we pray that uh, as we look at this passage, you will fill us, fill fullness of our mind as to the majesty of your Son, Jesus, and that as we understand him, not just as a doctrinal statement, but as a real uh, person in our life, that we will change our lives and always hold on to him. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, uh, over the last few years, I've been praying for this friend of mine. And uh, I've been, you know, the opportunities to share with this guy is uh, very few and far between. So I was very happy when, uh, not too long ago, I lent him a book about Christianity. It must have been just a few months ago, like, late last year, right? So, last week, actually, you know, it wasn't last week, it was just a few days ago, I asked him, how did you find the book? Right? Did you read it? And he told me, oh, you know, it wasn't very interesting, and he gave it to the library. <laughs> and now when that happens, right? You, you sort of feel like, you know, very small as a Christian, right? Because, you know, you've been praying for this guy, you take the trouble to give him a book, and then he gave it to the library. You don't even know whether he read it. Maybe he read the chapter, or maybe just the introduction, or the, you know, what, what, what the thing said in the back, right? And I think that, that there are times like this where you sort of think, you know, what is the relevance of Jesus? What is the relevance of Jesus to someone like this? He's a rich man, for him... He goes to a Marina Bay Sands, thinks nothing of drinking $500 bottles of champagne, Dom Pérignon, and things like that. What is the relevance of Jesus? What is the value of Jesus to him? And it makes you sort of make me sort of wonder, you know, like um, are there times in my life as well where I sort of feel you know, maybe Jesus is not as powerful as I think He should be, or maybe there's something missing in Jesus. Is there only something else I could do or something I could say that would make a difference? Maybe that would be a big thing. Now, according to this passage, uh, there is a secret, there is something that we can do to strengthen our convictions in Jesus, that when we meet with these sort of disappointments, that we can still stand firm in Jesus. And uh, I think the whole passage is really full of great, great depth. And that's why today, as we go through the passage, I'm going to go through each of the verses, and really let's use our minds and go in and find out what it says about Jesus. So he begins by saying in verse 15, right? So you can look up here on the slide. He is the image of the invisible God, firstborn over all creation. In your own Bibles it will say that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now what does that mean, the firstborn over all creation? Um, Some people, like the Jehovah's Witnesses, think that the firstborn over all creation is like the idea of he's the first of creation. Uh, He's still part of creation, he is a created being, but he's the very first created being. But we must remember that actually in the old days, being the firstborn is not just being the first in the family, it is the position of being the heir, the ruler, the owner, the inheritor, the, the chief inheritor. Okay. Now, in modern society, we don't think of things like that, you know, because obviously, if you are a child and your father has uh, things, you sort of hope that they will split things equally, right? Uh, maybe it's that time to send a birthday card to your parents, right? But, you know, you sort of hope that when they, when they pass away, everything will be split equally, right? But then, the reality is the olden days, in the times of the Old Testament, the eldest son was the one who received the inheritance. The oldest son will look onto the farm and think, this is all mine. Uh, this is, this is, belongs to me. I will rule over it. Uh, I will run this thing. So even, uh, I, this is the second week in the row I'm using my wife as an illustration. So even my wife Cheryl's family, right? she comes from a very traditional family in uh, Malaysia. And uh, she is the eldest daughter, but that doesn't really matter because she's the, she's the woman, right? She has a brother below her who is the eldest son. And uh, the eldest son Uh, you know, wanted to do property business. So basically the father took all the money and built up this property business from scratch and gave it to him and said, okay, this is all yours. It's all yours to own, all yours to control and uh, you're the sole owner of everything. And that's the idea here, that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. He rules and runs all of creation. To actually understand it even a bit bit more, if you look at verse 16, it builds on the idea. It's a very dynamic uh, passage, right? It builds from one verse to another. And in verse 16 it says this, it says, For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him, and forth in him, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now I want you to notice a few things about this passage. It basically wipes away any idea that there is anything that Jesus did not make, does not control, does not sustain, or does not rule over, isn't it? The idea of all things, you know, look at this passage, the, the idea of all things is repeated over and over and over again. And it's trying to say Jesus made everything by him. Or even in the first verse, verse 16, it is in the sphere of Jesus that all things are made. And they are made through him. He is the instrument by which the whole world and the universe comes into being. And more than that, it says things even more shocking than that, isn't it? He is before all things, that means he is not part of creation, and in him all things hold together. He is the glue that holds everything together. And it says there, everything was made. For him, he is the goal of creation. You and I, everything in the world, has a destiny, and that destiny is Jesus. So, Jesus is not a created being, Jesus is not a creature, Jesus is God, and he is the creator. Now, think of it for a moment, okay? Close your eyes for a moment and think what is the most powerful image of the natural world you can think of? Thunder. Lightning, solar flare, tsunami, hurricane, whatever, okay? And think, Jesus creates these things. He sustains these things. He controls these things. And, and to even expand your mind a bit bigger, right? Just think for a moment, how big is the universe? Now, according to uh, uh, man's thinking, uh, when, when the Russians first sent a satellite into space in the 60s, they thought that the, the distance of the universe was 4 billion light-years. Uh, light-years is the distance that light can travel in a vacuum in one year. So that's very fast, all right? Faster than your car, lah. okay? Now, a few years later, a few years later, they thought that when they had the powerful telescopes, right? That the distance of the universe was 8 billion light-years, so twice as much. But today... With the most powerful scientific instruments, they believe that the universe is 46 billion light years. Now, just to give you an idea of how big that is, that's 46 plus uh, many, many, many zeros. right? And it says Jesus' arms are so wide that he captures all this creation and he controls all of it. He made it and it is all made for him. But not only does he make it, he's not like a watchmaker. You know, some people have this idea of a watchmaker God, where God just makes the watch, he winds it up, or puts the battery in it, and he lets it run. It says that Jesus sustains everything. Now, that means that the very next breath you take comes because Jesus gives you that breath. Don't hold your breath, but Jesus is, is giving you life. He sustains the molecules in your body the, the, the way that the earth is at the moment, is not close, too close to the sun that gets burned up or it's too far away and it gets too cold. Right? Jesus sustains everything. And I think that it's a very important verse for us. There's just two or three verses, isn't it? Because it's a very important corrective for our thinking. Because if there's one problem that I think that we have in modern day Christian thinking, is we tend to think of Jesus as our buddy, as our friend. You know, like if you think of Jesus, people think of oh, Jesus as the baby in the manger. Or maybe it's Jesus just walking and preaching from the boat in Galilee. You know, that's how we think of Jesus. But what is Jesus really like? Jesus is is the creator of the world, the sustainer of the universe. He, he is the goal of everything. He is his destiny. And that's why, you know, we shouldn't sing songs like, oh, you know, Jesus is our friend. Uh, and sometimes you go to church and say, let's sing a love song for Jesus, right? Because I think that really brings Jesus down to our level, isn't it? Like He's just slightly above us, just slightly better than Andrew Ong, right? Okay. No, but Jesus is much, much, much bigger than any of that, those sort of things. He is the creator, sustainer, the goal of creation before all creation. That is the identity of Jesus. So he's supreme in creation, right? Is, he's supreme in creation, like it says there in the uh, sermon outline. And then it goes on to say, in verse 18, And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. So he's supreme in the created order and the universe. But he's not just supreme in the universe, he's also supreme in the church. Now what does that mean? That he's the moderator of the Presbyterian Church of Singapore? No, it doesn't mean that, right? Because the word for church here literally means assembly. Assembly. means a group of people. He is the head of a group of people. And basically what this passage is saying is he is the head of all people who belong to him. uh, With no limitation on time. So he is the head of all people who belong to him in the present, in the future, and the past. He is the head of of the group of people who belong to him with no limitation on distance. It doesn't matter whether they're in Singapore or in America or India or wherever. They all belong to him from various denominations, from various backgrounds. They all are part of the church. And why is he the head of the church? Well, it goes on to say that he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. Now, the idea here of firstborn and the beginning, sort of uh, in a dynamic relationship, they're both saying the same thing, and they're both sort of informing one another. So before, when we said firstborn, it was the idea of ownership, inheritance, uh, being the ruler. But here, the idea of firstborn is literally being the beginning, the first, isn't it? The firstborn from among the dead. It's the idea of temporal time, right? He is the first, the first from the dead. And that's why in other parts of the Bible, uh, you have a look at this passage, it says, uh, but the Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. But since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. And so, as in Adam all die... So in Christ all will be made alive but each in his own turn. Christ the first fruits then when he comes those who belong to him. See the idea Jesus is the firstborn and all those who follow him will be born again to new life a new creation with him. Revelation chapter 1 says Then he placed his right hand on me and said Do not be afraid I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead and behold, I'm alive forever and ever and I hold the keys to death and Hades. means he has the, the the keys to control eternal life, to stop you from going to death and Hades. Now, when you think of that for a second, it says that, next slide, next slide, yeah, he has his soul in everything, he might have supremacy, right? So you start thinking, well, why is it isn't it enough to be ruler and owner and sustainer and the goal of creation? Why is it it's so important for him to be the firstborn from among the dead? And I think that it's a picture of how Jesus is supreme in this creation, in this world, but he is also supreme in the new creation, in the new life, in the life, the resurrection age. Okay, not the new creation as in Sunsact City, okay, but the real new creation When everybody is born again, He is the first and He is the head. He is the supreme over that new creation. And I think that when we understand Jesus in that way, it changes the way that we understand church, isn't it? Our assembly. So I was reading this book. I would like to recommend it highly to you if you ever get a chance. It's written by Don Carson about his father. Memoirs of an ordinary pastor. Anybody read this book? Well, that's disappointing because huh, I gave some of this away. And you obviously haven't read it yet. Okay, don't tell me you gave it to the library, okay? All right. But um, he was saying that in, many, in the first few decades of his father's life, he was a missionary pastor in Canada. And his congregation on a good day was just slightly less than 20 people. For years, decades, the highest... Biggest size of his church was like 20. Now you think about it, that's really pathetic, right? There's less than two soccer teams. Isn't that right? Don't you think? You, on a soccer pitch on a normal Sunday, you get more people than that. And every Sunday, he only get about 20 people. Now, but when you think of it in terms of what Jesus is saying here, these 20 people are actually very, very impressive, isn't it? Because this group of people belong to the body of which Jesus is the head. They are the assembly of people of which Jesus is the head. And when Jesus comes again, these people will rise to eternal life, into a new creation. Now, in the world's eyes, what is the most impressive gathering of people? Maybe United Nations uh, assembly building in New York. Or maybe... uh, I don't know, uh, in, in Beijing, right, when the Politburo gathered together. Or, I don't know, somewhere else. FIFA headquarters, who knows, right? But here, it says that actually the most impressive gathering of people, no matter how small, is those people who gather of which Jesus is the head. That is the most impressive gathering of people in the whole universe. And that is why Jesus is supreme, not just over the, this creation, but over the new creation. But he goes on to say that not only is Jesus supreme in this creation and the new creation, Uh, look at what it says in verse 19. Verse 19. It says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now, here as we look at this, uh, in verse 15, if you turn back me in your Bibles, verse 15, it says that he is the image of the invisible God. That's what it says in verse 15. But image can mean a lot of things, right? I mean, uh, you go to a Golden Village and you see the cardboard cutout of Tom Cruise. That's his image, also, right? If you go to, uh, I don't know, some wax museum, right? you can stand next to, uh, um, I don't know, some famous celebrity, like, uh, I don't know, who's famous? Huh? Uh But anyway, but you know, or you can go to, you know, look at marble statues. They're all images, but how much of an image is Jesus of God? Well, verse 19 it leaves us with no doubt whatsoever, isn't it? It says. All His fullness dwells in Jesus. Is that what it says? All His fullness, right? All His fullness dwells in Jesus. There is nothing lacking of God in Jesus. When you see Jesus, He's not 99% God or you know, 95% God. He's 100% God. And there is no more of God that we need apart from Jesus. When you think of G-O-D, you should think of J-E-S-U-S, isn't it? Okay? Because they are the same thing. You can't say, I believe in God and not believe in Jesus, because Jesus is all of God. But the more striking thing, when you really think about it, is it says, and through Jesus, through Him, to reconcile God or reconcile Himself to all things, whether on earth or the things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. Now, when I was younger, I used to think that all things here Uh, was just humans, right? He reconciles humans. But you see, the context doesn't allow for it to be so small, just humans, right? Because, if you look at the next passage, right? Remember, he's saying all things, all things, all things, all things, all things, earlier on, isn't it? And he's still using all things in the same way. And what he's saying is, Jesus, through the cross, reconciles everything in the whole universe back to God. Not just humans, or the church, but the whole world is reconciled to God through Jesus. Now, how is that possible, right? What, what does it mean to reconcile the universe to God, or all things to God? Well, I think the picture, as we understand the Bible, is uh, when mankind sinned and uh, the creation fell, the whole world uh, was said to be under subject of sin and, and corruption and chaos. And that's what it says in Romans chapter 8. Now if you look up here, Romans chapter 8, it says, The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope. That the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay, and brought into, its glor- into the glorious freedom of the children of God. So, Creation itself, the whole world is in bondage to decay, to chaos, to evil, to wickedness, to sin. But at the cross, Jesus reconciles all these things and he brings it under the rule of God. Some voluntarily, some involuntarily, but there is order, there is rule, there is harmony under the Lordship of God because of what Jesus does on the cross. That is a very powerful thing to say, you know. Because as we understand uh, the book of Colossians, one of the problems in the book of Colossians was that uh, the temptation, and we see that today among Christians, was that we think that there's a great distance between God and man, right? Like God is far, far away and we are here. So we need to pray to the angels or we need to pray to these saints or we need specially anointed spiritual people or priests to intercede or mediate for us, between us and God, right? Because God is far away and we are like way, way down there, isn't it? But as you look at this passage, uh, it says that actually the distance between God and man is very, very close. Because if we are in Christ, and in Christ all the fullness of divinity is there, there is no distance between man and God. We are in complete communion and relationship with God. See, in chapter 2, verse 18, this is one of the problems of the Colossian Christians. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility or the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Uh, such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. So, there's an idea where there are people with visions, right? there are people where they, have, uh, they worship the angels, and, and, and we see the same thing for ourselves. That somehow we think God is very far away and we need to, to talk to the, the next person, to talk to the top man up there, right? But actually through Jesus, we have complete union with God. There is no distance between us and God. And the same way, we need to clarify to ourselves that Jesus has reconciled all things by His death on the cross. Uh, I, was, uh, I read this book before, and uh, Steve was kindly brought it to me from OMF Library. It's called Territorial Spirits and World Evangelism. If I've lent you this book, please return it. I can't remember who I lent it to. Okay, but I had it once before, and now it's gone. right? And, uh, and he, uh, this uh, missionary, writes this very good book about how, it, nowadays in Christian circles, we always think of spiritual warfare, right? And the territorial spirits. And that's why people go on prayer walks. And that's a very new, new. I mean, it's quite a recent phenomenon. And he, in his book, I remember reading it before, he makes a very good point. He says, these practices are not from the Bible. They come from outside the Bible, even a pagan understanding right, of territorial spirits, spiritual warfare, prayer walks, and stuff, things like that. But if you think of this passage, you really look at this passage and you understand what it says. If Jesus has reconciled all things to the Lordship of God and brought harmony and order and rule over all things, then there, there is no territorial spirit. There is no... We don't need to go on prayer walks because Jesus is the ruler. God has conquered all these things through Jesus Christ. You, you just have to pray to God. You just have to pray to Jesus because these things are already defeated. So, Jesus does not come, you know, first of all, the first thing we say, you know, Jesus is not this fail, feeble, weak man, or this little baby. Right? But, in a spiritual sense as well, through what He's done on the cross, He has conquered all things. You don't have to fear, you know, that you'll be possessed by the devil, or you go into a room and there's some evil spirit there. right? That, that somehow Jesus cannot overcome these things. You must have confidence in what Jesus has done on the cross. So, He's supreme in the creation, Supreme in the new creation, supreme in revelation and reconciling man to the world. Oh sorry, God to the world. But in verse twenty one to twenty three, it doesn't end there, isn't it? Verse twenty one he says, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish, and free from accusation, even if you continue, sorry, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, not move from what, from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard, and has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Now the picture has gone from, uh, if you think of it, for those of you who need to think structurally like engineers, right? Okay? It's gone from Jesus supreme over the world, Jesus is supreme over the new creation. And now, the picture is getting smaller and smaller, right? In a sense, Jesus is now supreme in the the, the churches, the individual churches, the individual Christians' lives in terms of reconciling them to God. And this reconciling is not an unwilling reconciliation, right? Because as Christians, we willingly are reconciled to God, right? Because that's why we have faith in Jesus. But he goes on to say that this reconciling work that happens with the Christians in Colossae and ourselves happens because Jesus has taken away our sin. And he uses three terms to describe it, isn't it? He says there, through his death, he is to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. Now the first two words, holy. And without blemish, I'm not sure what your ESV. Some of you using ESV says, uh, but it's the idea of being without defect. It's the same word that was used when sacrificial animals were presented to the temple. There, they were holy. They were set apart for God. They were without defect, no imperfection. And uh, it's the same word that is used in Ephesians chapter five where. Christ describes the church as his bride and what he has done for it. Right, so the same idea is there. Next slide. Ephesians chapter 5 says this, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her with water through the word to present her to himself as a radiant church. And, and here it expands on the meaning of the word, right? Without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. See, we, are, we stand before God and there's nothing that is imperfect in us because Jesus has made us perfect. But it goes on to say that we are, there is no accusation free from accusation. And this is a legal language. It's like when you go to court, there is accusation against you. There's a charge against you. And it says here that through Jesus, not only are we forgiven, but even the very charge or accusation against us is gone. Through the death of Jesus on the cross, we, are, we can stand before God and there's no accusation against us. And what it's saying is, look, for us personally, when we stand before God, if we are holy, if we are blameless, if we are free from accusation, what other things do we need apart from Jesus? There is nothing more, isn't it? We just stay in Jesus and that's it. And that's why the last part is stay in Jesus, right? Establish and firm. Now, whenever I read this part, I always think of the banks and insurance companies, right? Because they always like to pic- give the picture that they are established and firm, okay? Just like the Lehman Brothers, okay? Now, it is a picture of a rock, right? You're like, you're stuck in this ground and you are never going to move. That's the picture here. It's you're established and firm. It doesn't matter if it's a big storm, a tsunami, a hurricane, you will stick in the ground because you're so big and immovable. And that's what he's saying as Christians, because Jesus is all these things, we must like, be like this big rock and we are unmoved. We are stable. We are grounded in Jesus. Nothing moves us. Now, I hope that over the last 30 minutes, your knowledge of Jesus or your, your, your understanding of Jesus is much bigger, right? And as we get a big picture of Jesus, we see we must be unmoved in Jesus. We must... Be settled and stable in Jesus. We must be established in Jesus because Jesus is so big. He fulfills everything. So I remember John Piper uh, said this in uh, one of the sermons I heard on the net a long time ago. And he said, You know, when, when people preach in church, he said, You know, the pastor is trying to create excitement. Okay? And uh, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't because sometimes you'll fall asleep, right? Okay? And he said, You know, people. Pastors create excitement in different ways. So some of them tell very dramatic stories. Some pastors tell jokes. Uh, Some people will... um, uh, What's the other thing? Some people even shout, right? Some pastors shout to wake you up. And um, he said that actually, you don't need to do all these things because the gospel of Jesus itself creates excitement. If you really understand what it's saying about Jesus here, it cannot help create excitement in your life because Jesus is so big. See, Jesus is not just, you know, a doctrinal statement where I tick the boxes, yeah, Jesus is supreme, yes, Jesus is head of the church, yes, Jesus You know, it's not, not a multiple choice question, right? But if you really understand who Jesus is and what he is to you, I mean, he is huge, isn't it? How much bigger can Jesus be? He cannot be any bigger than what these verses are telling us. So when the world gets you down, and the world says to you, maybe it's time to move on from Jesus, then you need to come back and to remember who Jesus is. There is a saying which says, bad theology leads to bad practice. Not not, not Brad Pitt, right? Bad practice, okay? (laughs) And good theology leads to good practice. And that's true, isn't it? Because when you know how big Jesus is, then you will stick with Jesus. Because the world is always telling us, why don't you try something else? You know, you listen, you ever listen to the BBC? And the BBC, right, every week there's a different religious thing on the radio, different religious ideas from all over the world, right? And it's like, that's the way of the world, isn't it? Every week you're trying something different. So someone is like saying, you know, someone says to you, oh, how can you stay with Jesus? It's like eating chicken rice for the rest of your life, isn't it? Don't you want to try different things? One week chicken rice, the next week char then ta meat, pork, and then, you know, how can you think of Jesus all your life? Maybe you need to try something else. But when you realize Jesus is everything, and all things, He's supreme in creation, the new creation, in your salvation, in the church, then why would you move on to anything else? So in conclusion, I think that all of us, somewhere and sometime, have, uh, have been rejected, right? Maybe someone doesn't want to be your friend. Or maybe someone broke up with you. or You know, it's just, I remember reading this book, He's just not into you, not that into you, right? Okay? And whenever someone breaks up with you or doesn't want to be your friend or something like that, what is it saying? It's basically saying that there's something missing in you, isn't it? Uh, there's something that doesn't complete that person. Uh, maybe you're not interesting enough. Maybe you're not good-looking enough. Maybe you're not smart enough. Maybe you're not charismatic enough. Maybe you're not funny enough. But there is some part of you that is missing. But here, as we look at this passage... In the Christian life, Jesus is everything. There is nothing more you need outside of Jesus. So how big is the Jesus in your mind, right? How big? Do you capture the reality of how big Jesus is? Because when you finally get that into your head, you will see that you don't need anything more. And once we understand that, not just as a head knowledge, but in our heart, then we will be established and we will be firm and we will not be moved from Jesus. So may that be true for all of us. Okay, Let's go to God in prayer. Dear loving and heavenly Father, as we come before you today, help us to see that we need nothing more because in your Son Jesus, He is everything. He is God. There is nothing that is not God that is not Him, that He is our Creator, the world's Creator, the universe's Creator. He is the sustainer of the world, he is the destiny of the world, he is the goal of creation. He holds all things together, that he is the head of the church, the, the your people, uh, the people belonging to him through all generations and all places and all times, and that he is the firstborn, he is the beginning, the first one of the new creation of the new life, of the new resurrection, and that on top of that, he brings. All things under your feet through his death on the cross, and that he saves us by saving us from our sin, so that we can come before you without stain, without blemish, without wrinkle, holy and free from accusation. So, help us to always take into our heart and really fix it in our minds that we know we need nothing more but Jesus and not be tempted to move on and try other things and rely on other things. But instead, always turn to Jesus and everything. And we pray to you in Jesus' name. Amen.